You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Kirk, started up a training block today. Yeah, you hit the ski hill. I yeah, believe. today was day one, time trial day, like always. A little bit different time trial, but we just got done with our two and a half week camping cut off from the world to some extent and mm. got some weight to run off, some camping weight. And I've got a race I'm signed up for. So today was day one, time trial. You did uh, the old five fingers. Five fingers, yes. Did you beat my crown? I did not beat your crown. Ha-ha. I didn't beat my fastest time, but I ran my second fastest time. Okay. Why do you think it was important to kick off with a time trial? Why? And that's a brutal one, by the way. You should explain what that is. Five fingers is the biggest ski hill I have within two hours. It's something about 185, 200 feet top to bottom in a quarter mile run and there it's kind of a, a a hill that starts with like a 100 foot gain on the left side and there are i think seven runs over the course of it it peaks up three quarters of the way through and then comes back down with shorter runs on the side but there's a drop off there's the first five that kind of look like your thumb your your forefinger your middle finger and then two more middle fingers and then there's a drop-off, and it separates it from kind of the little baby hills on the right side. So we don't touch those much. So, sometimes I wish I had three middle fingers when I'm out driving. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I had that today. I had some road rage going on after my time trial. Did a little dehydrated. Can... Yeah, I wish I had all the middle fingers. Keep going. So five fingers is basically you run up and down each finger. You go up the inside of the thumb down the back side of the hill and around up the index finger down the back side of the hill and around so the descent is the same every time it just gets a little longer because you get higher up the quote-unquote mountain each time and the the runs get steeper and steeper and so as your effort goes on the hill goes from a tenth of a mile to a quarter mile and it goes from 100 foot of gain to 200 feet of gain so the runs get worse each time you're your descents get longer each time, but the mm-hmm. second half of each descent is exactly the same every time. It's, it's basically like if you held up your right hand and you spread your fingers mm-hmm. and you looked at your hand, all the runs sort of coincide up to your middle finger, but the remaining on the, the right are all the, your middle finger. It's like you look, it's literally looking at a hand. It's a great, it's a great yeah. time trial. Thumb, pointer, middle finger, middle finger, middle finger. Yeah, all those middle fingers, yeah. Yeah. And it feels like one giant middle finger in the second half of that. But it's a roughly 30-minute time trial, which is a good, sweet little spot there to do. It's good for heart rate testing. And uh, I signed up for the Tennessee Mile again this weekend. So I'm going to go down and do that six-hour race. And that's going to be like the capstone of my base building. So that's 16 weeks from now. It gives me 10 more weeks of just base building and then six weeks of a bit more threshold and speed skill work. So this is, this is time trial one of two, which is just going to test out my ability to run up and run down and repeat. How'd it go? This is what I wanted to talk to you about today, Kirk, is it went surprisingly well. Now, you and I did this together. 
when you were prepping for Tahoe World Championships in 2017. Can you believe it was yeah. 2017 already? I can't believe that we put up with each other for this long. More than anything. Four years ago, we did this time trial together. I think I was still coaching under you. You may have been. Back then, yeah. So a bunch of us came in. We had a group of people that day. And you went. You, you were getting ready for Worlds, and I was getting ready for Dubai later that year. I wasn't I wasn't in your realm of fitness yet, but I was I was getting there. I would say I was at like eight what, what would you say? 85 or 90% fitness that day. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also argue that I was in much better fitness than my world performance showed. I had gotten sick yeah. in elevation, so I was really fit then, feeling very good. You were at like something like 95% fitness. Oh, for and sure. And I was yeah. probably 85, 88, 89. So yeah. anyways, times here. You went 29, 38. Okay. And I went 30, 57. On that day? Yeah. You beat me by a minute 29 over the course of what amounts to a 10K worth of time. But it's only yeah. three and a half miles, 3.6 miles to do the whole roundabout. And you gain a 1,000 feet. Yep. So we are a minute and a half apart. I was 30, 57 that day in in the middle of a training block. And today I was thirty-one twenty-nine. Holy smokes! I was thirty-four seconds slower. That's impressive. And you know how much you bleed time going uphill if you're not fit. You can't fake that. Yeah, and I was I was shocked. I was going out there prepared to be happy to break thirty-three. I thought if I lose two and a half minutes, that's about right. And I lost thirty seconds, so I was very happy, and it felt terrible. On the uphills. I felt bad, but you always feel bad on those uphills. And uh, that one, the litmus test on that time trial is how quickly you can get back to bombing the downhill and how little you have to power hike. Um, how Was that grass up to your hips like it sometimes is, or was it mowed? Uh, it had been mowed. It alternated between ankle and knee. Okay. Annoying enough. Annoying. Yeah, not... It didn't impede you much. It was just annoying. It wasn't. It wasn't so thick that it, I don't. I don't think it slowed me a ton. It just. I found myself taking not a direct tangent route, because I just got annoyed at the grass. Yep. But I think in a race I would have just gone straight ahead. So I don't know. I, I don't think I lost a lot of time from that. But anyways, my my takeaway was that. At the top, I was pretty blood filled in the quads on each climb, and I was switching to power hiking on the last two and a half climbs whenever I needed to. I power hiked more than I wanted to, but I was able to, for for most of it, keep the pedal down while power hiking. Really awesome. bent over, like speed hiking. But my downhills felt very solid. And I think all this is, at this point, is strength work. Hmm. I was just going to ask, what do you, why do you think that this was? So... Well, I can't point to anything in my training, and training, again, is in air quotes, because as you know, I we did a whole episode on me being aimless and lost with desire and no real, you know, averaging 11 miles a week. I wasn't doing anything in training to point to being able to run up or downhill, but my body felt as stable downhill as it ever has. You also got two knees that work. I do. <laughs> I do. Mm. but because they each have 50 to 60% less cushioning than they used to have, I was a little interested to see what would happen. And I ran this in the, uh, 
the VJ Spark. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't hook up for the descents. I wore a a racing flat. That Spark's got a nice uh, cushioned insole in there to absorb some impact. It's the spongiest of their insoles. Yeah. Which we're not supposed to talk about the Spark yet. I don't think so. I think Bracken. I think we're supposed to keep that quiet. Well, now people know something's coming. Anyway, it, it was I didn't wear a cushion because I wanted to know where my body was at. And because I knew by the end of this training block, I wouldn't need to rely on a Hoka. So I wanted to feel the difference. But my hips, my glutes, my lower back, those are the areas in my soleus. Those are the areas that usually get really bad during descents, and they didn't. I was I, I ran downhill thinking, look like Ryan Atkins. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take long bounding steps, but he doesn't take mincing steps. He's on his toes, and he's always driving forward. And his arms aren't doing anything crazy. They're in control and low. Yep. And I was just trying to look like or feel like he looks because I I know I get out of whack on hills as soon as I get out of control. So I was able to stay pretty much in control. And I feel like you need your hip girdle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That area is is like your 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 safety harness on descents. And that all felt strong. And so all I can point to is the amount of deadlifting and front squatting and and uh bulgarian uh split squat that i've done over the last 15 weeks and that's something you've been consistent with even if the running hasn't been perfect it's been my only consistency it's power in that it's something i take for granted with my durability is the fact that i've been strength training consistently for like jesus two decades 15 years and so that's like in me right and so i don't think about those components where you took a few years where you really didn't do much other than like functional OCR overhead bar work and stuff. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, it's pretty cool to, to hear that you feel the difference. Yeah. And I, I walked into this knowing that I was going to get punched in the face by the climbing and by the cardio instantly I was up above my lactate threshold and I stayed there for the, the whole time. And then I, I got to the point where initially my lungs and heart rate were my limiter and eventually my quads are my limiter. Do you, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean there? 100%. Like, yep. The first couple of climbs, I was gasping way too hard, but my legs still felt fine. And by the second half, my legs were gasping way too hard and my heart rate started to drop a little bit. But it would have been even worse if you weren't doing your strength work. It would have been, it yeah. would have been instead of a trickle of bleeding out, you would have been like artery sliced, hanging on for dear life. That's oh, the yeah. difference. Yeah. The last maybe 600 meters... Nah, probably 500 meters of that descent is a segment on Strava. And my first one was 129 and my last one was 131. Very consistent. Neither of which are my PR on that, which you're not going to PR on this on this workout because your legs get so trashed. But it just shows that even when my fitness really degraded going up, I was still stable enough to work and keep my feet turning over going down. And that was kind of a cool feeling. So I guess just a takeaway that sometimes, because we have that split of OCR athletes and regular runners. Mm-hmm. And I just think sometimes we lose a few people when we start talking the strength component. And this was a good reminder that there is a greater carryover from strength work than is generally believed by the, the, the general running community. Especially when hills are involved. I would say it, yes, the exponential, it's amplified exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it was a nice feeling now knowing that I get to build on top of that. A lot of my worry with these, like the six hours of 400 and 40 or whatever it is 
feet of gain and drop every single mile for six hours in this race. Part of my fear is just building up to the downhill demands of this race. But knowing that right now I can handle those demands is what, what probably as well as I've ever been able to, even when I was living in Colorado. I was faster downhill, but it damaged me more than this. So now I just get to build fitness on top of some resiliency that I didn't even know I had. It's a good thing being three months out from a race like you're about to do. And I will also say that this reminds me of something when I am injured, which, you know, seems to be a theme with me over the last, uh, well, my whole life, um, you know, I come back really quickly. I tend to get into fitness fairly quickly, even on low mileage after injury. But the one thing I do every time I'm injured is I go right back and focus on the strength work, very, very heavy and very purposeful. And then I feel like my resistance to impact is already very high going back into my running. And so I can kind of get back to it and really do some real stuff shortly after. And I would say I credit that in hindsight and and just a reminder after what you're talking about is due to the strength work, because the big thing about running is it's all, I mean, half of the battle of course is your cardio fitness, but then half is the resistance to impact and being able to endure that. If you can't run, what's the best way to simulate that? And that's heavy load and strength work. So it's just interesting to hear you say that because I've experienced that many times coming back from injury after a big strength block because I couldn't run. Second takeaway, Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> and final takeaway is on my way home, I had to stop at the district office in Lake Geneva and enroll Mira, our four-year-old for 4K. Mm-hmm. We're open enrolling her. I was so sweaty, still, still sweating profusely. And I had a change of clothes, but I was afraid to get into them because I was soaked and I was disgusting. So I stopped and parked at the lake and I jumped in and I bathed in the lake before going to the meeting. Like a true, like a true professional would do. <laughs> but there was this kid, had to have been in high school, running along the place where I used to do my Bigfoot workout. And to anyone who has ever done a workout that I've given called Bigfoot, it, it was built at Bigfoot Beach Day Park. That's why it's called Bigfoot. Yep. It's got a lagoon in there with two bridges and it just it's perfect for an OCR interval workout. But he was running along the lagoon and looked just like death. His form was totally shot and his pace was extremely slow. His turnover was non-existent. He was spending more time on the ground than off the ground. You could tell he was just incredibly far out of shape and having a miserable run. And just watching him, it it hit me that this right here is why running for running's sake is not beneficial. I looked at him and thought, if he did nothing but bike, power hike on the treadmill, and and running drills for a couple weeks, he would come back as a better runner than if he just did this run every day for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. because what he was doing was so extremely uncomfortable that you could tell he was going to not enjoy running and he was going to sour his relationship and he was practicing terrible habits. And mm-hmm. I'm a believer that time on feet cleans up your mechanics, but there were pathways that aren't going to be able to be fixed without specific drill work. And so I, again, I just wanted to give a reminder to people that if you're in that place coming off of injury, because it looked like he was coming off of no training, coming off, no Mm. training, coming off of injury that you fill your hours with cross training and you fill your running with skill work up front. And that pays off really big in the long term because you can't handle the type of load required to spring your fitness forward. But 
but you need that type of load in order to get your fitness going and that can be built by cross training but then the importance of working drill work so that when that kid comes back running his form is able to handle running this guy must look really bad for you to make it a talking point bracken honestly it was it was one of the worst i've ever seen and i just Mm. felt for the kid because it was hot it's the middle of summer by this point i was done with with my workout and so it was probably 9 10 a.m and he was just in it and you could tell that he was not a runner and was trying to be one and i thought that's how you never fall in love with running is to force yourself through that he looked like have you ever seen a like a 70 or 80 year old person out for a run and they're walking but they're thrashing their arms to -hmm. run sure it looked like that but he was 15 or 16 that's not a good start where it's just like really really thrashing and it was painful to watch and i just i felt like (laughs) i felt bad i wanted to chat with them but it's inappropriate i wonder like when i see people it's like kind of this like curse that you probably have as well as i have but when i'm driving in the car and i'm going by people running and let's say jess is with me I can't help but comment on pretty much everybody. If it's an overweight man or woman running and they're just slogging, I, I like clap in the car. I'm like, that person, yes. I don't care what they yes. look like. But if I got like anybody, I have to say something about, oh, she's cooking. Or, oh, look at that efficiency. Or, oh, that stride is terrible. I can't help it. I don't know if that's just us as coaches, but I know you do it too. But I can't help but comment on everybody. And I, I wonder with it in that situation, when you look at a kid like that, if it's deconditioned, like what did he look like the first quarter mile of his run? I think this was early on. Okay, so he was just he's his biomechanics are just completely s- smashed. It honestly looked like he was still kind of injured. <laughs> That's not good. And so yeah, it just like if you put your time into a different modality and focus your running on drill, oh, you're going to be so much farther ahead once you can finally handle volume. I agree with so, that. And it's, it's a judgment-free judgment of these people. For You talk about, I drive by, I'm like, oh, that's a lot of airtime. That's a lot of bounding mm-hmm. in that run. That's not a look at that fool. That's a look at how much room for improvement there is. Well, I think I think the the confusion about what you're saying right now is this, is that if you know anything about running or you know anything about periodization or any of that, you're like, first, step out your door and just go running. Just do base work. Just put in long, slow, ugly, meaningless miles so you lay a foundation. And we do preach that, but the like caveat to that is like, if your shit form and your shit fitness uh, can't be improved upon or like with that strategy, then you must maybe actually reverse that a little bit so you mm-hmm. get some efficiency first. And so it's like a little confusing, like... If somebody's deconditioned and they know their form is crap, like, should you start with 30 second interval repeats? Well, if you're mechanically sound, maybe not. But if you're not mechanically sound, then the answer would be yes, right? So it's kind of confusing. Yeah. It is. Because running is such a basic human skill that many of us don't have. But it's considered a basic skill. Like, just go run, get your 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 bunch of ugly miles out of the way. But you earn the right to go run ugly if you can run pretty. Like the ugly is in the feeling and in the pace, not in the look. And that's the right. difference. You have to learn to run correctly and then you can go, you know, slog through some, as people will call it, junk miles, which I don't believe exist. But it's one thing Richard Diaz says. He always, his slogan is, you can't win if you run like shit. And I used to really hate that because it's abrasive. 
but he's right in that if you're if you're running incorrectly all the running in the world doesn't make you run better learn to run better and then learn to run more how do you this is not our topic today you sprung extended intro it sure is but how do you know like that person isn't running in front of a mirror that person has no idea what they look like we all know like like, for example, I had a video that I had taken of me at the Asheville finish line where I passed Brian Gowiski, and I thought I was a stallion prancing through the finish line, passing him. And then I watched that video, and I was like, you look terrible. You're scooting, and you look inefficient like you've never done this before. And I swear to you, if I had to, in my mind, say, what is the picture-perfect way to run, I would have imagined that's what I was doing, and then I saw it, right? And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's embarrassing. So, how do you know if that's the problem? Like you, like that kid probably has no clue. None, no clue. What do you do? And most of us don't. You have to watch yourself. Unfortunately, yeah. or fortunately, the good news is it's cheap and easy, uh, and you you have to do go through the embarrassment as if you don't have a treadmill with a mirror. You have to go someplace that has one a friend, a gym, set up a mirror, and also set up a camera. I'm a big believer of seeing yourself from every angle. It's kind of like. Most people look at in the mirror every day, but they don't have a trifold mirror. Is that what you have mirrors above your bed? <laughs> that's yeah, that's it. I do a seeing lot of form drills. Seeing yourself from every angle. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. just for, yeah. form drills, Kirk. I think I figured. All right. But you, you ever have this where you just look at yourself like we we shave every day, or maybe obviously you don't, but you brush your teeth every day, you wash your face, you you, you floss, and you only seen one angle. And then you go to like a fitting room or something and you see yourself from the side. You're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize the, the side of my head looked like that. 100%. Yeah. And that's how our running form is. You run and all you see is your mental image. You look down and you see your arms and knees and you, you think you know how you look. Or maybe you catch your shadow while you're running for a couple strides at a time until it catches back up. And that's it. Or you see yourself only from the front in the gym or on your treadmill and you see that mirror and it looks one way, but suddenly you see your stride from the side in the back and you realize there are some things happening there that you had no clue about. And so I think you have to set yourself up and running past a camera doesn't work. You either have to be in front of a, you be on a treadmill or you have to have someone biking or driving, taking film of you so that you revert back to your normal stride and get a good several minute long chunk of it. Or you hire a, a running coach. You go to a Rich Diaz clinic or someone like that. But that's that's obviously a little higher-end deal. Why did you feel like this was so necessary to bring up? Because I see people running like shit every day. I guess I'm curious why, why it struck you so strongly today. Uh, I was feeling the first-day runner syndrome today. Where you're enthused to get out the door and the run just punches you right in the face. And it's not that fun. Like I didn't have any ounce of fun on my run other than getting to the top of the final climb and saying, yep, this one's in the bank. I got this and I have minutes to cut off later. That was the only fun I took out of today. And it flashed me back to high school when I saw this kid of me in the summer, quick trying to fit some mileage in before cross country after I'd done nothing all summer. And that hot, sweaty, miserable feeling using basketball shorts and I could hear his phone and his keys clinking together in his pocket you know, it was just that every factor combined to make it a bad run. And I know there's a lot of people that listen to our podcast because they want to get to whatever their pinnacle as a runner is. But we get a lot of messages after we interview people who are not pinnacle-based runners of 
thanks for providing someone who wasn't a sub 15 5k runner or it was refreshing to hear from someone who wasn't all state growing up because it it made me a little bit more in tune to what they're going through so we clearly have both sides and encouraged yeah and it's easier to relate to and so since we have both sides and it is the hottest point of the year i know we have people out there who are thrashing themselves and fighting themselves and hating running right now and i want to give people permission to if you need an overhaul do your running drills and put your volume in somewhere else until you've earned the right or earned permission to go back to to running the volume i would tell every single one of those people who feel like maybe they run like shit We'll call it, and I think you probably have an idea of who you are at this point, to go back to foundational strength work from like the hip girdle and below, and and, and then incorporate short, quick intervals, and then everything in between on cross-training. And do that yeah. for like a month, where you strength train hard. It doesn't matter if you're that sore because you're cross-training in between your hard intervals, and you just work on running quickly with a more efficiency, and you strength train and I think work on that for yeah four to eight weeks and then go into like, as you say, junk miles that you don't believe in, but then start running steady. That's what I would prescribe. If you're one of those who feel like my efficiency is killing me, yeah, I think that'd be a good starting point. Absolutely. And we said hip girdle twice now. It's one of my favorite descriptors. Of a I use it all the time. I love it. And what's the hip girdle? Well, I describe it as if you're looking at a sumo wrestler. Where they're bundied up? Everything they have covered up is the hip girdle in my mind. The diaper they're wearing? Yeah. Yeah, it's basically bottom of groin, if you're a man, up to belly button extended all the way in the back. That's what I consider that hip girdle, which is a little higher than it technically is. What if you're a woman? What's the difference? Well, your groin doesn't extend quite as far down. (laughs) <laughs> so I just talk of picture a male sumo. Anything that is covered by clothing is hip girdle in my mind. And I, I heard a, I forgot one, I don't know if it was Carl, uh, my buddy who I work with or not. Someone told me the other week a quote that I hadn't heard in a long time, but it was, not everyone with a strong back and core is a great athlete, but there's never been a great athlete without a strong back and core. Mm. And while I'm sure there have been, like I'm sure that there have been some some old timers or some obscure sports that were super weak through that area. No long-term successful athlete is weak through that area. And Mm -hmm. today reminded me of all this, that core, hips, lower back, that really is the the, the, kind of the the limiter on the pounding you can take as an athlete. Hip girdle, anything that is or involved around your pelvis with the insertions, and then also obviously your hip joint, which means, yeah, lower back, hip flexors, hamstring insertion, glutes all of them uh piriformis all of them. and that's where my sumo wrestler analogy breaks down because their their butt cheeks are out their hamstring insertion and their butt cheeks are out but if it was a modded i guess an adult diaper a high-waisted adult diaper is a little bit more just google hamstring. depends and then you'll know so that's it kirk that's my long-winded i had two big takeaways that i feel that apply more to the beginning entry or getting back to it runner and maybe just a good reminder to the top end thank you for your psa bracken thanks for your tolerance of it that was a long intro hip girdles folks hip girdles girdles. i just want to say that i'm joining the uh the camper club this afternoon i took the it's a big deal i um 
buying a camper. Things are getting pretty serious on my end. You've been talking about these camper endeavors you're taking, and I've been getting like twinges of envy. So this afternoon, I'm off of work. I canceled clients. I'm going to pick up myself a camper, and then I figure we can be, I don't know, like not only podcast hosts, but like camping besties if you're up for it maybe someday, if that's cool with you. I think so. Not I think so. I know so. But what I think, I don't think that everyone needs to be a camper person. I certainly was against it for the first 30 years of my life. Not against it. You were against it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I grew up tent camping. I was actually fundamentally disdainful of people who had campers. Like that's a glamping thing, which isn't camping. Yes. Is that what you're talking about? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Absolute nonsense. Go get your pedicure on your camping trip kind of nonsense. I agree. In a sense. Yeah. But I've come around a bit because of the family interactions that we've had. However, I think it's going to directly improve your life because it is no more getting up at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning to drive to your to your hunting spot and no more leaving in the middle of the night or 3 in the morning to get back the next day. You can just sleep where you hunt, and that's going to be a game changer for you. It's a deer hunting wagon, yep. Yeah. And I may, uh, may road trip. You and I both really like our road trips cross-country. Uh, yes. so we'll be, we'll be doing a bit of that. So it's kind of a big day for me over here. I'm excited for you. We, we're going to, we're going to have to camp. We're going to have to do a training weekend at Granite Peak now with our campers. I said that to Jess last night. When Did I, you? When I officially, I, I bought this on Facebook marketplace, but I texted the guy and said, Hey, let's do this deal. And then after that, I was like, you know what I would really like to do is go to Granite Peak with Brack and have a little date weekend. So we'll, I was born uh, already. We'll have to set that up. Should we um should we get into what we're doing today? Yeah. Yeah. We ran out of time on some people last week with our QA. We left six questions behind. You opened up your inbox the next day. We had six more. We're gonna finish up QA part two. Part two. Well, we owe it to our listeners. I feel like some people, I don't know, if I sent a Q like a question in a month ago and then we did a recent QA and it was not answered, and I'd be like, I sent you a question a month ago, you didn't answer it. I'd be a little cheesed, right? I'd use my three middle fingers. So I uh, thought we should just do those people uh, service and, and answer those questions. And there's some good ones in here too. So yeah. Shall we kick it off? Let's kick it. All right. Uh, this is by uh, Michael Grieve. He says, when doing NIC slash recovery work, do either of you have a preference of what you do if you plan to use a pool? Actual swimming or aqua bike slash treadmill. I recently discovered my local pools have these and I'm thinking of using them. So if we're going to use the pool as a recovery tool, what is the best thing to do in the pool for recovery? First of all, Kirk, our message is starting to get out there. We have people using our acronyms, NIC, non-impact cardio. I'm sure we're not the first people to use it, but I've been using that in my coaching for years now. And I love seeing people use a term that I use. It makes my eagle swell up real big. <laughs> well, I'm happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. That's You're it. welcome. All right, next. <laughs> you should answer the question. I didn't even hear it. I just zoned out after non-impact. Uh, I think that it's a an order of just like regular non-impact cardio, what is the closest replacement for running? unless you're rehabbing injury. If it's simply non-impact cardio for the sake of avoiding running, then aqua jogging for me is far and away the best. Either aqua jogging or actually running in the shallow end of the pool. This aqua bike 
is intriguing. I've not ever seen or used one. Yeah, I haven't either, but I agree. Mimicking the running motion is always priority one versus like going and swimming laps, I, which serves its purpose at times. But um, something we used to do in high school, which I don't know if my coaches knew what they were doing or not, but every uh, like two or three weeks, we'd have a pool day in between uh, hard interval days. And they would put us on the edge of the pool and we'd put our arms up on the edge of the pool. Like, let's say you're putting both your arms around two hot chicks, right? Like that guy on the couch leaning back with his arms around two babes. Well, that's oh, what you're doing. you're reclining. You're lounging. You're lounging. Correct. Gotcha. I was picturing forward. No, they're, they're definitely right next to you. You're not slow dancing with them. No, no, no. They're next to you. You're just like pimping it out. Anyways, you got your arms up on the edge of the pool like that spread out as a brace. And then you do the run motion in the pool. And it makes a big splash and a big, but it's just like high knee drill, let's say. And you can sit there in that motion and actually cross train with like knee drive against the water, but your arms are up. Now your arms are not a component, like if you're aqua jogging, but that resistance and stuff really like worked well. And so our our coach preached that. And I think that's like a good option. If you don't have an aqua jogger, if you don't have a pool that's conducive to running underwater where your feet hit the ground, just like latch yourself onto the side and then just knee drive in a run or bike motion. It's like a really good alternative. We used to do that a lot. I like that. That would it mentally feels to me like that would really fire up your your hip flexors and your lower abdominals. It did exactly, and we would do interval sessions in there, thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off, where it like really worked. So it was a it was a good one. But I just think I like closer that. to run motion, the better. I don't know if you have anything yeah. to add to that. Just that if I'm ever actually swimming, it's for pure enjoyment slash like active yoga type deal mm-hmm. like it's just for full body wellness or because i have an event coming up that requires me to be able to swim i don't use swimming as a cardio form because it is so far removed from running that i don't think it provides me much benefit because my skill level is not high enough to do it correctly i'm not going to get a cardiovascular benefit the way i would even from aqua jogging because i'm not efficient enough at swimming to do it and good swimmers swim primarily with their arms They're not, especially for what we would use it as, which is endurance-based swimming. Even in the Olympics, if you watch the 1500, they're on like a two-kick type of stroke where it's kick, kick, one per arm. It's not that constant flutter kick. So it's not a leg-based activity, and thus it's not very sport-specific. Yeah, I agree with that. But I love swimming. Yeah, swimming's great. I would say your hip flexors get a lot of work, even with the minimal kicking. But other than Mm -hmm. that, yeah, it doesn't engage much. Um, you have no questions, I assume. So I'm just going to be the moderator here, right? I have none in front of me. Okay. Uh, Spartan Anthony, I have a question for your next Q and a, can you run too fast on an easy day before a quality day? I know you should base your easy runs on heart rate and effort and not really look at pace, which I agree with, but let's say you are having a great cardiovascular day and your heart rate is staying under control, but you are moving faster than usual on what you would consider an easy effort. Are you potentially doing some damage to your legs that you should be saving for the next quality day? For me personally, easy days are usually nine minute pace to stay under 140 beats a minute. But sometimes I find when I run 745 or eight minute pace, I can still maintain the same heart rate of 140, but I can feel that my legs are working harder to maintain that pace, but breathing and everything else is uh, under control. Should I intentionally slow down? Tease to an easier effort and save my legs or just focus on whatever effort my body can handle on that easy day? That's a great question. I like that question. It was a lot. 
Yeah, but, it, it, that's that's that next level of thinking. They've they, they've moved to the I'm going to keep easy easy hard hard. But what if easy is also fast that day? That's the the next logical question to ask there. And my take is that for the vast majority of us, which are people who don't rely on that final half a percent. 1% of training stimulus in order to accomplish your living or your life's goals. When you get a good day, you roll with it. You enjoy it. You have fun because let's say you receive single digit percentage less out of your next quality workout. Are you really even going to know? Is it going to change you fundamentally as an athlete or a person? Probably not. But having a great run the day before is absolutely going to improve your life. So that's my take on it. It's a good confidence booster when you're on a recovery run and your pace is faster, but your heart rate is where it, it's supposed to be. I also think that when you're doing a recovery run and you're quicker than normal, but your heart rate is staying where you still want it, I think that's a really good indicator of improved fitness. Like, hey, I'm running 20 seconds per mile faster, but my heart rate is the same as I want it to be on a recovery run. It's like a good indicator that your underlying aerobic fitness has improved. And I think that heart rate is always the number one indicator still. of That's like your truth. That's still your truth, right? Heart rate. That doesn't lie as far as the effort goes. So that's still your truth, which means like if you're going to run a little faster, but your heart rate's staying where you need it, then you run a little faster. That's okay because the heart rate's your truth. So that would be my like simple answer to that question. Yeah, and that's the way fitness improves, right? You do something over time and eventually it just costs you less and you can do it easier, at which point you have to start doing it faster in order to cost the same amount. But that muscular component will take a little leg a little bit. If your engine improves, but the like your pistons haven't, well, the pistons have to get used to that new amount of work. So that's just yeah. part of the continuum of fitness, and I'm okay with that. The only time I would say it's not great is if you are doing a workout towards a race and both are dependent upon hitting splits, which almost only is necessary in track or short road racing. Because most of the time we're trying to work a system. And systemic improvements happen regardless of pace because they're based on your system. The pace doesn't right. matter. But if you need to target a pace, let's say you're trying to set the master's world record in the mile, and you need to be hitting 32.6 seconds every single 200, if you come in a little fatigued, you can get the systemic work, but you're not hitting the actual pace and turnover and stride length that you're going to be able to need to nail in your race, and so you're not getting the full benefit of your workout. So in those rare situations, I think it's worth it not to run a little faster on the day before, but again, those are... Those are very few and far between just even of the number of individuals that have a specific goal like that. I got to imagine like 99.9% .9 of our listeners doesn't apply to them. Correct. Doesn't yeah. apply to me. But but that's a decent caveat. Yeah, it would apply to us in college maybe. Yep. And that would have been it. And in college, we had it all wrong. We never took our easy days easy enough. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, why did it take to my 30s to learn this? It's bullshit. Um, <laughs> sure is. Uh, Tyler Mosesian, uh, former athlete of mine, um, says... Is that how you say his last name? I've always wondered. That's what I say. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you ever corrected you. I see his name online a lot. He decided to spread his wings and fly, you know? That happens sometimes. You teach somebody what they need to be, you know, taught, and then they spread their wings and they fly, and I like seeing that. Um, two Q&A questions for you, both unrelated. 
How long would you prescribe a recovery run for someone training for the Spartan 24-hour ultra in Telluride? I've been doing eight miles at most. There's also a weekend long run in there. But I'm wondering if I should get my get more volume in on my recovery runs than that. And then he goes, actually, I guess they are related. Question two. <laughs> for a 24-hour ultra training, would you prescribe overnight runs that include fueling at non-traditional hours of the night to train the GI systems? Thanks. Good questions. Part Good one, questions. that should I extend my recovery runs when training for X event? And X usually is a longer event. Um, that is a super common question. Kirk, I assume you get that a lot. I get that yep. a lot because in our minds, we have X number of volume is needed to hit this race. Mm-hmm. And I think it's logical and I think it's inherently flawed. 100%. Because the, the key is in the word, the title, recovery run. You should run as long as you can run while recovering and not a second longer. Yeah. Full stop. Okay. Um, I agree with you there. I think that you know fitness is going to be changed on your quality days and your long runs, especially for a 24-hour event. Your recovery runs aren't really moving your fitness needle. They're just getting you ready for your next day that matters. And so if you want, if you feel a little like, oh, I should be putting in more volume if you have that like underlying feeling, like a, like a mile or two or like five to 15 minutes longer on your recovery days if it's something you need as peace of mind. But honestly, it's really unnecessary. You're not moving your fitness needle. You make your big quality workouts bigger. You make your long runs a little more purposeful and longer um, and a little more strategic. But your fillers are still your fillers. You know, they're your snacks between your meals. And you don't eat big snacks. Your little snacks, yeah. and then you have your big meal. And so that's what recovery runs, no matter if you're training for an 800 meters or you're training for a 24-hour race. So, Tyler, an eight-mile recovery run, honestly, if that's where you feel comfortable, you don't need to change that. I don't think you do. No. No. The, the only people that can push the envelope on their recovery runs are people that aren't swinging the hammer hard on their workouts. Yeah. And that's those are the people that do, like, you know, 10, 15-mile every day. And there are some people that still swing hard on their workouts, but most people, it's it's all they can handle systemically to keep that volume up and so they don't do big quality days, which is one of the, the ways to train for a 24-hour event is not to do big quality days, just do that daily grind. But since we're a fan of big quality days, yeah, you limit that. And and honestly, for a 24-hour event, I mean, for any event, I'm an, I'm always a fan of if you if your lifestyle allows it, add in doubles. Especially for a 24-hour event where you're going to be on your feet multiple times in multiple different stages of the day. Then, yeah, add in a night run or an extra morning run. But, yeah, pushing the envelope, I like in training at times, but never on recovery days. Yeah. And then his follow-up question about should I run at night to just adapt to, like, fueling through the night and my body getting accustomed to that? Um, Yes, absolutely. I think the answer there is... You know, it's one thing to train your fitness. It's another thing to train your fitness in sleep deprivation when you're off your typical schedule. You can be the best fitness ever, but if you're sleep deprived and at least not accustomed to that feeling, it can really throw a wrench in your race. So um, I would say if that is your plan to save a couple of long runs where you're up all day and you wait until 10 p.m. to go out and you hit your four or five hour run, whatever you need to do, some of those big efforts, and you do fuel along the way, and you get done at 3 a.m. and it's miserable and it sucks, um, I think that's important to run when like, the last thing you want to do and your body's ready to unwind for the day 
is to then go out and do an effort. So, um, I, I, the answer is yes. I think it will improve your performance. Yeah. It's not mandatory, but it's mandatory if you've never done it before. Right. If this is your first 24 hour race. You have to spend some time on feet at night. It doesn't even have to be quality. What Kirk said is exactly right. It's, it ha- you have to get yourself to the point where you don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means waiting. I, I did this with an athlete who was preparing for a 24 hour race, but they could not handle much volume. And so I had them wait around the house and wait and wait and wait. We didn't have a set time. You're just going to keep eating and drinking as needed. And when you finally get to the point where you're like, ah, I don't really want to do this anymore, then you got to wait for a little bit longer and then mm-hmm. go do your run. Because you just, it's, it's about experiencing that feeling. 24-hour events have some low lows, and you want to be prepared for that. you got to build some callus up to being able to just say, yeah, I'm doing it. No matter what. Yep. Yeah. And I would also say like a really like foolproof strategy, like a big one that I know a lot of people play with. But if you're new to the 24 hour thing is is like uh, reduce your caffeine tolerance and then reimplement on race day. Sometimes, you know, when we're up at 2, 3 a.m. and you're trying to work hard and you're cross-eyed, delirious and tired. Well, if you already have a lot of caffeine tolerance built up because you've been drinking a lot of it on a regular basis it doesn't even do anything for you at 2 a.m. because you're so far gone that it's like you drink a cup of coffee or a pre-workout and you still could fall asleep in that moment. Whereas if you kind of reduce your tolerance like two weeks out and then you finally give it to yourself on race day, six, eight, 12 hours into a race, it may actually hold you through where you actually hold up like cognitively and physically pretty well. So like, I just think that's like a pretty big miscomponent for a lot of ultra athletes that are first getting mm-hmm. into it is just the, if you're already reliant on caffeine anyways, get off it and then get back on it on race day. And that can like save you big time. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess my PSA with that, and I agree a hundred percent, I recommend it for, for everyone, yeah. but Uh-oh. I have a fear of GI distress on long race days and caffeine can absolutely cause that if you're not used to it. And yeah. so my recommendation when you tail off is you still keep at least one effort per week that you keep it for. If you're doing a two-week detox, I still keep one to two caffeine doses present throughout that. Two weeks shouldn't be enough that you lose it entirely and it just wrecks your system on race day. But I would just rather not find that out. They say five days, roughly, give or take, when you you know kind of reset your tolerance. And if it's only five days, you're fine. If it's if it's a 24-hour race, you got to pull over and drop trowel, like. The caffeine benefits are going to far outweigh the cost of like shitting in the woods, I think. Yeah, and I guess I'm speaking more to the shorter event people. It's still common. You see a lot of people in that 30-minute to 3-hour range who are still caffeine detox right. leading up to an event. Yep. Where one poop stop ends your day. So, But, yeah, if you're, only, if you're doing five days out, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, Nick Tusa uh, says, question. Just recently made the move out to Colorado from Minnesota to take my trail running to the next level. He's taking it serious. I like it. All right. Uh, One thing I've noticed from being out here is at about the two-hour mark during big mountain runs, my quads start to cramp. It's almost like clockwork. Happens every time. Been adding more salt tablets, but it doesn't seem to slow the cramping. Any tips? Thanks. And he says, P.S. Love the podcast. You guys have got me through so many training runs over the past year. Oh, start, Nick. What do you say? Well, if you're addressing the the electrolyte components, 
I'm a believer that salt tabs are not enough. I like full spectrum because electrolytes interact with each other and with your body differently than standalone salt does. Sodium itself is not enough. So I would continue to mess around with everything. I know, Kirk, you're a magnesium believer. Is that correct? Magnesium? Yeah. It's just anytime somebody's having real chronic issues and they end up high dosing magnesium, it typically alleviates the cramps in some capacity. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's the first part. I would, if you, ha- I'm, I'm making assumptions here that you haven't tested full spectrum, take care of all of them. Uh, second thing is, if that's not what it is, it's fatigue. Yep. And two hours is a very fatiguing point, especially in the mountains for a Midwesterner. And so you just got to spend more time more time, more time, weight room will help. And maybe giving yourself some days in between. When I moved out to Colorado, I had the same issues. I had to start running in hokas because I couldn't make it down the mountain each day. And then I had to start reining myself in because when you get out there, you just want to see it all every single day. If you're in the mountains for the first time in your life, you just want to, it's like going to a buffet every day. You can't binge eat every single day. If you go to a buffet once a month, you can kind of get away with it. But it just doesn't work every day. And so, yeah, go binge on some mountains one day, but you might have to hit the flats or bike the next day to give your quads a little bit more time to regenerate. 24 hours is not generally enough. 48 to 72 hours is the sweet spot for a lot of the processes of regeneration in our body. Processes? Prosci? Yeah. Prosci, for sure. It's prosci. Prosci. Yeah, so your, your, your quad prosci might be longer than 24 hours and i would i would lean into that especially up front yeah that could not have been the most wrong word to choose however um uh, um i i don't know how long you've been out there nick but i will say like an, an odd correlation i will make is i got my nordic track incline trainer in 2017 and i started living on that thing i was like every day i'm going up and i'm inclined hiking as recovery and i'm running quality days on it and it served a huge purpose, but it also took me like three to six months to acclimate where it like didn't mess up my next few days or get rid of my, like I just fatigued so fast going up that I wasn't used to those same muscles being engaged in like a steady manner for a long duration because all I had were hills that were a minute and a half to run up here before that, that it just took time, man. Like it just did. So I think that's probably part of the, the adaptation process is you just got to keep doing it. It will get better. For sure. One thing I'd add. Just think about that impact. If you go out for a two-hour easy run in the Midwest and a two-hour easy run in Colorado Mountains, you are taking a vastly different pounding on your body. Yeah. Running downhill easy is not easy, even if your heart rate says otherwise. Yep. Yeah. Um, next question. You're going to be excited to answer this one, Bracken. Um, Brett milks T-Rexes. <laughs> we're finally getting to uh, uh brett you got to still get back to us and let us know where the nipples are in a t-rex i mean yeah, i would assume between the short arms but how would baby get to that babies are too little to get all the way up to those nipples between the small arms so i would say nipples are lower more like belly button area on a t-rex what do you think bracken well we had fun with this on the episode but t-rexes aren't mammals i know which is too bad because i would love to watch a t-rex nurse However, I have a feeling that this is a Sandy Go Joey <laughs> type of situation where we are reading San Diego Joey as Sandy Go. I wish you could see this. Okay, it actually, I'm showing Bracken. It says Brett T Rex in parentheses 
Milks. That's his written name, not his handle. Oh, okay. So we're not we're not messing this up at all. Never mind. His his handle is love love in pain OCR. That's his handle. Anyways. Okay. Well, on Squadcast right now, you get to put your chosen pronoun in parentheses. Mm-hmm. And maybe he's done just that. So it's a Brent Milks and then in parentheses T-Rex. Possibly. It's not the crazy thing. T- I always assume T-Rexes are males. Like when you see them in a movie, it's never a woman T-Rex. It it's is. Always a, it's always a man. No, the, the T-Rexes are, are female in Jurassic Park. But I, I like visually and like emotionally mm. commit to it being like a, a male animal. And I'm I'm the opposite. <laughs> because of the movie and the book Jurassic Park, I assume all dinosaurs are female. Mm. Well, I guess we can uh, disagree oh. on something. Um, look at that. Look at that. We're learning really still about each other. After all these years, learning about <laughs> each other. Uh, quick question. Not sure if you guys said it on the podcast. If you're racing every weekend, what should the training look like? Exclamation point. <laughs> Very simple question, but I, I like it because it's a common sort of situation people find themselves in. Oh, the training is going to be very, very, very polarized. It's going to be a lot of low, like zone one, zone two aerobic work and a few short, purposeful workouts thrown in as needed. Like efficiency work in the middle of the week. Yeah, we like to talk about not racing very much. Or not over racing and recovering for like a week to seven, 15 days after big races. But we've also gone, what, let's talk about indoor and outdoor track in college. 15 weeks straight of racing every single week almost. Give or take. Racing all out to the point of nausea every single week. So it's doable. And we were still doing two quality workouts a week. So it's doable, but it's dependent upon... Um, how well you want to do at each one and what you're building towards and what you're building from. But either way, a lot of easy aerobic work in between. Yeah. Um, the thing people forget about, you know, we talk about working hard and, and building fitness and then it culminates at a race where you perform well. But if you are one of those every weekend type racers, like the weekend races are a workout in themselves. So people think, mm-hmm. oh, I need to do these hard workouts to get in better fitness for my next race. But what you're forgetting is that that race is a hard workout that is going to progress your fitness for yet the next race. So the mistake people make is they get in too much work in the middle of the week between hard races, thinking that workout is somehow separate in their body's physio- physiology than the race, which couldn't be more incorrect. So. Yeah. People overdo it in between races. Yes, you need to do a short quality bout, but like if you're really racing hard, you're keeping like your quality work at like 15 minutes or less on one day a week in the middle of the in those between those races, and that race is still going to move the needle for you. So, um, I would say people tend to do too much in between races than too little, and that's like just the one sort of I don't know thing of note there. Yeah. And this is, I hope this doesn't come off as patronizing or preachy, but racing every weekend hits differently depending on how good you are. And I don't like to use the word good very often, but in this sense, I think we need to use it. If you are so good that you know everyone on earth who can potentially beat you, your races are extremely damaging to you. Very damaging. 
and you can only you hear a lot of pro athletes say this you can only get to that place like that specific place where you give you leave everything on course a few times a year yeah. because it's so mentally and physically draining however if you're just pretty good where you you're not going to win a race but you're not going to do poorly in a race either then races are pretty demanding and exhausting but you're not necessarily trained to the level where you can just absolutely only keep a few of those efforts per year and if you're just not very good at at being fast a lot of people are good at training and good at handling load of 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 work but they're just not good at being fast that's not their gift in this world races Mm. aren't that demanding on you they're still mentally challenging. They're still physically depleting, but they're not depleting you at a cellular level to the point where you need 15 to 20 days to recover from an effort. We heard, um, who is that? Jess O'Connell talk about it. When she runs a 5K, she's out of commission for two weeks. Yep. Most most people, if you're not supremely talented, a race doesn't affect you like that. And so, yeah, it's really just a big workout. And at that point, it's all about balancing the equation. What system did my race work on? And then I do the opposite in training that next coming week. I like that. You used to say that like um, when we first started working together, if you had a flat race, let's say the weekend, then go hit some vert in the middle and balance things out. If you had a vert race and go and hit some flat quick stuff just to keep your fitness balanced and your turnover sharp. I like that approach too in between just like deciding what type of quality work to do. The opposite of what you just came from. Yeah. And I want to clarify that being good comment because that's such a bad word, but a very good runner could run a 5k every weekend and say it takes them 15 minutes that's absolutely like vo2 max work for at least half of that race but a runner who's not as successful it might take them 30 minutes to do a race in which case that's really more of a lactate threshold workout Mm -hmm. and we've preached that you can run lactate thresholds every week year round in which case Mm -hmm. racing every weekend is not a bad idea you just have to balance that equation with something else midweek a long run short spicy stuff skill work things like that yeah, just don't screw yourself over in between right? and get yourself to the next weekend. It is a conundrum, though, we do run into. Um, this is sort of my own personal feelings as as coaches. You know, you get an athlete who's racing 40 times a year, and they're racing every week or every other week um, on average. And then they hire you as a coach. And it's hard to train an athlete who's racing every week because really you just give your, your athlete a filler in between every single race there's not a lot of coaching to be done other than like basically one specific workout in between each race and that's Mm -hmm. it so that's also like a an interesting thing to navigate even as a coach like you're asking the question but then i ask myself that question constantly when i have an athlete who likes to race every single weekend it's a tough position for anybody to put themselves in to understand how to get from race to race to race so the answer is you need to rely on the races to build your fitness And you need to rely on the workouts in between to just get you to the next race where you build your fitness once again. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. This was not a question, but I think it's another good reminder for people. I don't know how intensely you watch the Olympics, but there were several people in track and field who set national records in the semis in or in the prelims, in the semis and in the finals or in two of those where they PR'd three straight times in one week sometimes in back-to-back nights, and they set national records in back-to-back evenings. It's just a good reminder that back-to-back racing is not impossible. Three weekends in a row of racing, not impossible. In fact, 
you can be at your best multiple times in the same day, yep. let alone the same the same week. So it's not something you can sustain long term. These people trained and trained and peaked for this one moment, but it was a kind of cool reminder that sometimes we have to step out of our own way and say, get out of my head and go out and attack, recover, and have the confidence that I can do it again. Cole, Cole Hawker, who raced, I think he towed like 38 start lines since the yeah. first of the year, went out and ran his personal best in the prelims. He ran his personal, let's back up. He ran his personal best in the Olympic trials, then goes and run his personal best in the Olympic prelims, his personal best in the semifinals, and then again his personal best in the Olympic finals, taking fifth or sixth. Um, and that's his like 36th, 7th, and 8th race of the year. Talk about racing and still being able to figure it out. So it's possible, just as a testament to what you yeah. just said. Yeah, yeah, it's it's unbelievable that what what you can actually do when trained correctly and when unencumbered by doubts. Uh, next question from Denise Hahn. Listener question: Not to beat a dead horse, but how Good. does one train not to cramp? Let me preface that by saying I am a 52-year-old age group racer that was well-prepared for Utah. I have a trainer. I had a plan. I trained in the heat and elevation. I had my nutrition and hydration on point. But in the end, the climbing fatigue got to me. I double calf cramped at Bender about seven miles in. What could I have done to prepare my calves better? I agree 100% with Ryan Atkins' post, except where he said if you cramped, you weren't prepared. But then again... Maybe in that respect, I wasn't. So how do you prevent cramping due to fatigue? Question mark. This is a tough one because we've all gone into a race thinking we were correctly prepared. But you don't know how prepared you really were until after the fact if you execute correctly. So, for example, Kirk, we just talked about earlier in the episode how you were super fit for Tahoe in 2017, and you got, what, a sinus infection and went out there and just didn't have the race you wanted. Yep. So we couldn't accurately judge how prepared you were. But in a race like this, if you think you're prepared for a race and you cramp, the harsh reality is that in some way you weren't prepared. And that doesn't mean your training was a waste. It doesn't even mean that you were wrong about everything or most of it. It means that there was one missing component or more, somewhere in there. And Kirk, mm. who do I hear echoing through my head right now? Fred Clary. Dr. Fred Clary. Were you prepared for the demands of the race you expected to be there, or were you prepared for the 120% of the demands of the race that you expected to be there? Because if we don't make it through to the end of the race, and let's say you nailed your nutrition and you nailed your training, it means that you trained for a different test. Yep. And that might just mean you trained for 90% of the test, which is fantastic. You only have 10% improvement to make. It also might mean that you were prepared for the total demands of the race, but because of the level of competition, you just pushed harder. Yep. And that took you over the percent that you were prepared for. Or you were prepared for the intensity, but it was longer or hotter or the terrain was steeper. Whatever it was, there's one little piece that was missing. And that's the cool thing about being an athlete versus having an argument with in a relationship is that there's nothing personal about failing as an athlete. You get to look at your body as a machine and say, all right, I was wrong on this 1% here and I'm going to change that and I'm good to go. Where if I was arguing with you as a person, it would be a very personal attack to say that you are missing a component. Right. That's not the case here. So you get to analyze your training, find out where you weren't 120% prepared and fix it. 
I'm uh, I'm very distracted right now. So I have my uh, I have my phone. <laughs> Thank you. So, I just sorry. talked for three minutes straight. <laughs> sorry. You've done this to me. So I, I sorry. have. I have. <laughs> I, I, have I have my phone pulled up because I have to read the questions from there. So I did this to you last week. I'm sorry, but uh, so I told you I'm buying a camper, mm-hmm. right? Like today, I'm going to pick it up, and so I have to. Uh, write this gentleman a cashier's check. He's an 81-year-old gentleman named named Roy, because it's a large amount. And we organized the fact. I said, hey, can we meet this afternoon to go to my bank? And we'll do the cashier's check together, and I'll hand it to you. He wanted to be along for this. And then we'll go drive to the camper, and I'll pick it up. We never set a time or anything. And he just called, and I ignored it. And then he just sent a text and said, I'm at the bank. (laughs) So he's... (laughs) This guy is at my freaking bank right now, Bracken. It's like 35 minutes away, and I'm recording a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I didn't set a time. I think this this boomer just decided that after I sent that text to leave to go to my bank, and now I'm in a conundrum here. And I think what I'm going to do is I think that the the running, pod, uh, running public podcast is more important than a camper, so I think I'm going to ignore him until we're done recording. What do I do here? You know what? How, how many questions do we have left? One, two, three, four, five, six, six. And this one is six included still? in the six. This is included, so five after this. We'll make it quick. Here's what I think. Why, why don't you take care of it, and then we'll finish up. <laughs> Let's answer this question, and then I'll get to it. We'll let the okay. listener just wonder what I do. I, I was going to respond. I was listening to you, but also distracted in the fact that I have a big purchase on the line. A guy's sitting in a parking lot at a bank waiting for me. Um <laughs> 81-year-old man sitting there. Um, here's, here's what I think about your question. Sorry, Denise, to distract. Um, my question is this. Okay, you said at mile seven that you cramped. Well, first of all, have you climbed for seven miles before in training? Step one, like, were you prepared? Probably. Did you put enough time on feet? Probably. But if you're, I don't know if you're a mountain liver or not, but have you climbed for two hours straight? Yes or no? Answer that question. Then the second question is shoe choice. Do you run in your cushy hokas, but then race in your VJ shoes? Do you know how much mm. more stress that puts on your calves? If it's calf cramps specifically, have you done that? Have you spent hours and hours in your race shoe in training? Maybe you say yes to all of these. Well, then the third question is, are you doing it on undulating and technical terrain at times where you're just slight pivots in your ankle and s- different stressors on your calves? So as well prepared as you were, and you might have done everything right, Like then we go to those like micro details of the situation and maybe just maybe it's because you trained in a different shoe than you raced in or you ran on smoother terrain or the treadmill to get the vert but didn't get the you know technicality of the terrain there's always probably something if you really looked at it and those are the things i would go to first i like that you brought up two things and and i liked i liked every piece of that and i think there's two accompanying pieces that that jogged in my memory. There's an Mm -hmm. athlete I was dealing with, not dealing with, we were dealing with a problem that he encountered in a race. And what it came down to was that he was totally dialed in for his, his sweat ratio and his, his, uh, not his ratio, but his sweat rate and his, his electrolyte depletion rate for six 30 in the morning, but he wasn't dialed in for 12 noon. Sure. And age group races don't happen at six 30 in the morning. So that's one piece that could be lacking. The second is that, he just overhydrated the, the the 42 hours leading up to the race. He right. actually just washed things out of his system by being so on top of his hydration that he overdid it. 
Yep. And so those are two pieces to also look at. Were you training at the time of day and were you making the correct inflation rate for your needs? And then did you maybe just throw your, your race baby out with the bathwater <laughs> two days before the race or the day before by, by over flushing your system? You threw the baby out with the bathwater, but that, wanted to work bath, that, back in there. that bath was in the forest. <laughs> so you yeah. threw the baby out in the bathwater in the forest. where there Could have been on the plane. Sure. Some, sometimes we travel with water and we're not working all day long and we end up just filling that time with drinking water to avoid getting cramps. Next question uh, is from Kenny Schroeder, I believe. It's cut off. It's a group message between me, you, and him. Yo, fellas, miss me? Question mark. Same. That's the intro. <laughs> <laughs> Rhetorical, right? Uh, I'm prepping for the Atajo Beast. Open wave. I'm running my quality days Tuesday, Thursday, adapted in the Boise Mountains for Hills. Uh, about 7,000 feet elevation. What are your recommendations for the swim? Close on, off, dry bag, brand recommendations for dry bag. I'm going to simulate at least a couple times pre-race day with equipment to see how my body responds from run to swim to run and grip impact, then prepare for a Tahoe's unforeseen. Um, so basically he's asking about the swim, what to do, close on, off, da-da-da, and then he's saying also fueling, gels versus gummies. Mini life goal, make a Q&A on the Running Public podcast. Well, you've Boom. arrived. So what do you say about the swim in Tahoe? Well, I like the fact that he's in Idaho and has access to cold water and mountains. Yep. Although I, I know it's been a very dry summer there, so I wonder how much he'll he'll be able to swim. But merely the swimming's irrelevant. It's more about just getting in there, getting cold and wet, and then getting out and running in the cold. So you'll know more the closer you get. But there are really three options in my mind. You either wear nothing in and nothing out. You're racing shirtless. I've done that before in cold races, and if it's not crazy cold and you can get to work afterwards, I've been fine as long as I can keep my hands warm. Your second option is to wear everything in, everything out, in which case you need something that is at the bare minimum water and wind resistant so that mm -hmm. you can trap some body heat afterwards and warm it up. And at the maximum, something that's totally waterproof so that you basically just have to have the water drip out of it and then you get really toasty afterwards. And then the third option is wear whatever you want, throw it into something that is waterproof, and then come back out the other side and get redressed. And the answer is it's whichever one you respond to best in training, and then you bring all three options to race day in case weather forces you to change. I have like 10 things I want to say to this. Do it. Say it all. One is uh, Patagonia Houdini jacket, which we've preached, over like just a thin, long sleeve base layer. You wear that shit in the water, no matter the conditions, swim in it, get out. It traps body heat like a champ, dries in a second. And I think that combo is impossible to beat. Look at Aaron Newell, myself, Ian Hosick, all at the last world championships, all did that. Robert Killian did the same thing with a different type of shell jacket, wore it all in, never took it off, wore it out. And everybody had good races. So I'm just going to say that combo is deadly. Second, I'm going to say you need to look at like, okay, what are you doing after the swim? You have to almost wait to get course recon. Are you going uphill or downhill? If you're going in the swim and then going uphill, Christ, you could wear a wet blanket in there because you're going to go uphill and you're going to work so hard that you're going to warm yourself up. So who cares? Plunge in with your park on. You're going to work so hard you're going to warm up. If you're going to go downhill right after the swim, which was the case in Tahoe the last time, different story we need to make sure that we can handle the descent where you might even cool off a little bit while going because you're not working as hard then you also have to look at the weather 
saying, is it one of the warmer days? Did we get lucky? Is it one of the colder days? What does the wind look like? What do I do from there as far as what I'm choosing to do with my attire? So it is like, wait for course map, wait to read the weather, and then decide, in my opinion. Because going up and down after the swim is a huge deal, and then looking at the weather is a huge deal. But the safest bet, I think, is something like the Patagonia Houdini with a thin undershell. And then the other thing he said is that he's in the open wave, which means do you or do you not care about your placement? If you want to go for an enjoyable time, sure, strip down naked, swim, come out, take your time, put your clothes on, and you're going to be best suited. That's still the best answer as far as being comfortable. Absolutely. So if time doesn't matter, then do that. So there's, I guess that's not 12 things. That's like five. But there's so many components to it. Your, your big takeaway is the same as my big takeaway. You have to travel there with every option and you make a race morning decision. Not even a race eve decision because we've seen it. Mountains weather, mountain weather is unpredictable and you have to wait to see what it is. My perfect world in a place like Tahoe is that the swim is at the top of a climb early in the race. In terms of being able to do this with the least amount of wardrobe changes possible. In which case I am, and I did this in 20 something, one of the years there, I just ran with no shirt. I had a headband on and I had mittens on that I could take on and off easily for obstacles. And I just ran up the mountain, worked hard all the way up the mountain. We did a carry, did some obstacles, and then we got in the water. And I just took my mittens and headbands, stuffed them in a plastic bag, twisted it around and stuffed it in my shorts and swam. And then I got out and then I got back to work. And if it's cold, really cold, I have that tiny little Patagonia Houdini or my craft lithe jacket, one of the two, rolled up super small and watertight in a back po- in, a, in a waist po- pocket. So I, if I need it and if I'm forced to have it, I throw it on and it's dry and it's warm. It's been warmed by my body heat and I'm fine. And if I don't need it, I never have to futz with it. Now that year I needed it because we got out of the swim, climbed just a little, and then we hit that what they call the soccer field area up there. Yep. And we started doing obstacles, crawls, obstacles where the wind's whipping, it's super cold, and you're not working hard enough to stay warm. So again, have every option and you decide in the morning, but be comfortable with every option and practice it. I went with the, in the ultra last year, I took all my stuff off for the first swim, not all, everything on the top of my body off. I just had a one gallon Ziploc bag. I just stuffed it in there, twisted it and zipped it and stuffed it right into my shorts, not even in a pocket. I just stuffed it down the front of my compression shorts, Mm -hmm. did my swim came out and then everything was dry and I started putting it back on. But my hands were so numb and I hadn't practiced that routine while wet. It took me a quarter mile to get my jacket zipped. And that obviously cost me valuable running time and it cost me valuable getting warm time because my hands were in front shaking trying to get it zipped rather than get it on, throw my mittens back on and start working hard to warm up. So you got to practice every option and then bring every option. Happened to me in Tahoe trying to, somehow my Houdini jacket came unzipped and I had to try to zip it after the swim and it took me like two, three minutes of futzing and running yeah. and I lost time. Um, basically, listen to everything we said, think of all factors, know they're all there, be prepared for all the options, and then wait until the course map comes out and the weather to decide what exactly yeah. is going to happen. You can't be figuring that out right now. And the, my last piece of advice for this is that the longer you're out there on course, the more you're going to want your head and hands to be covered if it's at all cold. There's a difference between spending two hours out there in the cold wind and four hours. 
And that difference is going to come in your body heat and particularly in your fingers and hands. And so having something dry that you can throw on over your hands whenever you need it is key. Yep. Uh, next question, Chris Hins. Uh, hey, Kirk. I have a question. Not sure if you'd want to save it for QA or not. I have an issue with my heart climbing as I run. My heart rate stays pretty, pretty steady as I run, but as I get warmer, it's like my body heat raises my heart rate. Do you think that's just a lack of fitness? If I'm running on the treadmill, it'll stay right around 140 to 145 for about 12 minutes. Then it starts to climb as I continue to run at the same pace. The floor is yours. Were you ignoring me? You were looking at something. No, I was, I mean, I was looking at something, but can you see it? You see my wrist? Yeah, is that like a friendship bracelet? No, below my friendship bracelet. You see that? That is a wasp sting. I finished my warm-up this morning, popped a, went to go pop a squat in the woods and started getting stung by a wasp on my hand and immediately pulled my pants up because I wanted no part of that. I believe that. Imagine if it got you somewhere else. Uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. So then I went and did my, my time trial like that, and it helped. It just made me think about my hand the whole time. Wow, maybe you should do that before a race. Bring like a bag of bees with you. <laughs> you know what? That's a really good idea. <laughs> Shove your hand in that bag, let them go to town, and then... Hey, guys, anyone want to get in on my bag of bees? <laughs> Let's answer Chris's question. Uh, my take is that if... I mean, some people are just sensitive to different components like heat or temperature. If it's causing you to rise that drastically, which is like, what, you said 12 minutes? After 12 he minutes, says, starts I, to climb? Yeah, but he says, not about the heat, it's more like as I get warmer, meaning like even if he's in a comfortable treadmill, 70 degree air conditioning, his oh. heart rate still rises. It, it's I think it's indiscriminate of what the heat is outside. He's just saying as he gets hot. I am maybe totally misjudging this, but that just says that you're starting too fast. It takes your heart rate a bit to get up. And so if you have your zone slightly wrong with what you think your aerobic threshold is versus what it really is, if you start five beats too high, it's comfortable because that's still an easy effort, but it's going to start climbing shortly after. So I would, I would probably start by taking an aerobic threshold heart rate test. You want to explain that? I mean, there's many ways you could do it, but the one I really like to do, I mean, you can, you can follow it on Garmin, but the one I like to do is the uphill athlete tread, treadmill test where you do, you let your heart build up, build up, build up um, while nose breathing, running on the treadmill, and then you hold it for 15 minutes and you take your average throughout that time. And, yeah. and you can look that up. That's their, that's their test. I give them all the credit in the world. Uphill athlete. It's, the, it's a good book for any athlete who runs uphill or skis mm-hmm. uphill or does like mountaineering, schemo, anything. So. Um, yeah, I would start by finding an aerobic threshold test that you can reliably use or a lactate threshold test and make sure your zones are right. Yeah, and, and cardiac drift is real no matter what the conditions. Like your heart rate will rise with the same perceived effort at times, like if over duration, like that happens uh, even to the most fit athletes at a certain point in the run. So you may be dealing with that, but it comes back to what Bracken said, and I think that is just like regaging what your effort should be. And I think maybe you started a little too quick. And so um, I don't think it's for lack of fitness. I mean, it might be a part of the equation, but it's more like even if I'm as fit as I've been, if I go and say I'm running seven minute pace today and then I'm, I started 130 beats a minute, but now we're in, I'm at 140 beats a minute like that. My effort didn't change. My pace didn't change, but cardiac drift happens. So like, I, I just think you need to be slower and 
Yeah. Heart rate's number one, right? As we said earlier in the episode. So, And realistically, I don't even build up to a real honest effort at all on my easy days until after the first 10 minutes or so. Maybe that's all it takes. Maybe start another notch below and work up to that and see if that changes things. Yeah, I like that. Um, next question, Evan Wilson. We have three left, including this one. I have the following question. One of my favorite workouts from the running public training plan. Running public training plan. Are you Evan Wilson? Did you plug this? Nope. Uh, I am not. However, Evan, glad to have you. Um, Starting over. One of my favorite workouts from the running public training plan is the two-minute fast, one-minute slow. It's simple but effective. I have recently modified this workout to replace the one-minute slow with 15 lunges, squats, burpees, etc. We didn't prescribe that, Evan. My question is regarding progression. As in... A standard 5x5 lifting program, you're progressing by 2.5 or 5 pounds per week, and I don't move on until you complete the required number of sets. What is the, This is interesting. It's very deep question here. What is the 2.5 pound equivalent for running? For example, I started with 6.45 minute pace for two minutes hard with the goal of just peaking over threshold during the exercise and then relaxing back into the run. Do I slightly increase the pace until it's unsustainable or increase exercise reps until the two men run isn't long enough to relax before the next set of exercises. Thanks for the advice. That's a layered one, man. It is. It's a good question. Uh, first of all, modifying workouts is absolutely acceptable as long as you understand what the new modified workout is doing to you. Correct. So the way this two-on-one-off works is it was a progression of one-on-one-off, two-on-one-off, then when you go to three-on-one-off. And so you're working on extending the time you can spend at pace, which is already doing that type of progression that you talked about. However, so sorry, sorry, stepping back, you need to be able to look at the big picture. Yeah. And understanding where you're going. Yes. With those type of workouts, two on one off, three on one off, you're not able to run that much faster than 10K pace or or let's say 30 to 45 minute race pace. Because the one minute rest is really the limiter. So extending mm-hmm. time at it becomes more important than cutting that time down faster for a lot of people. For an untrained athlete, you're also going to get faster throughout that time. But there's only so fast you can take it. Otherwise, it's going to be unsustainable after a fewer reps. So you don't want to lose reps. If you increase your pace, you want to be able to hit the same number of reps, but at a slightly faster pace. Mm-hmm. However, the wrench gets thrown in when you replace Passive rest with active work. 15 reps of something is incredibly more demanding than 60 seconds of nothing, which is then going to immediately change the work you do on your next run, which means if you do manage to hit, let's say it's your 10K pace again, it's going to come at a much higher energy and exertion cost. So that changes the scope of the workout. Well, the word rest isn't even, that's not even the correct word anymore it's what the opposite of rest is work. So you're going from work into more work, back into more work. Yes. Yeah. And then that becomes an issue. Uh, To answer the third part of the question, lifting. Weightlifting has so many less variables because oxygen is not needed. Outside of normal respiration, oxygen is not used for energy during, during weightlifting. And so linear progression is much more attainable. Linear progression is not attainable in running for a multitude of reasons. And so while you can script 
you could come up with whatever my 2.5 to 5 pound rule is for running, you won't be able to follow it most likely because it won't be accurate. So my feeling is that one of two things needs to happen. A, you need to follow the plan as is because we have our regular running workouts and we have our compromised running workouts and we have a reason for why they're there. Or if you feel like you need more compromised work in your life, you add the work on to the interval, not to the rest. So you still take your 60 second rest, but you start your two minute on with your 15 reps and then you do your interval, but it counts as your interval. You do not, <clears throat> you do not borrow from the rest. You simply add to the rep. So Kirk, I know I, I grandstanded for a while there, but I wanted to get all of my thoughts out. Yeah, you're turning that workout into like a Hobie tempo, which is one that we really subscribe to. You're basically working hard, broken rhythm, plyo, working hard, broken rhythm, plyo, which changes the dynamic and the efficiency of that hard run completely. I think um, modifying stuff is okay. If you're an intuitive athlete and you feel like, hey, I need to, I need this tweak, I get that. But um, you got to think, what is my intended purpose for the day? And then what do I need to get out of this? And then look at the big picture, not the small picture. So like, if it still fits into there, then fine with the modification. But I agree with you. It goes back to the Chris Brown episode last week. And he said, wouldn't it be great if we could just apply linear progression to running? Today, I run a five-minute mile. Tomorrow is a 450. The next day, I'm a 440. And then I'm a two-minute miler eventually. Like You can do that more with weightlifting than you can with running. And periodization works completely differently with anaerobic versus aerobic work. So um, yeah. I would say you almost have to squash trying to compare that. Um in a sense, but it's a logical fallacy. Yeah. It, it's led a lot of people down that rabbit hole. It makes sense on surface level and you go deep enough and you either figure it out through research or you figure it out through trial and error. Yep. So like a win would be you run 645 pace for your two minutes hard with the one minute rest. And then the next week you do five burpees during your one minute rest, still have 45 seconds to rest and still run your 645 pace for your intervals. Then the next progression would be like the pacing would never change, but what you're doing during your quotes rest changes. That would be a, a linear progression if you want to make that make sense in your yeah. head. But I don't know how else I would do that. The only other way I would do it, and this is something I've, I've tried doing with myself and others, is something I really like, is at the beginning of the season, I time trial. And based off my 5K, because I believe lactate thresholds everything in 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 endurance sports or not everything yep. but it's it's a large portion so i find what is my lactate threshold pace and i do run intervals at that but my goal is to be able to get my ocr intervals down to that pace by competition time or 10k pace 10k pace is very important for certain styles of ocr race so in the beginning i'm doing let's say intervals at 520 pace standard intervals and then i alternate them with ocr intervals and i'm hitting 540 and my goal is to bring that same OCR interval down to 520 by the time I need to compete, where I bridge the gap between my running pace and my OCR compromise pace. But again, it requires you to know what the intended goal of the rep is, and you have to respect the rest. Respect the rest. That's the best way. Respect the rest. Respect the gosh darn rest. Two more questions. Carrie Adams. Uh, Cramping question. Man, we we always find our themes, don't we? Yes, we do. Cramping question. The only time I get cramps in my calves is after running through cold water in the latter half of races when my muscles are all warmed up. Creek or dunk wall or colossus. Doesn't matter. Is this something that's possible to train away or is it my body's physiological response to the temperature change and I'm stuck with dealing with it? Yeah, you might just be a cramper. There are people like that out there, but I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm an eternal optimist. 
I believe that everything is trainable. And I don't think it's so much that your muscles are warmed up and they're shocked by the cold. It's that the cold is amplifying what's already going to happen in your race. It just hastens Mm -hmm. it. A cramp was coming for you. The water just accelerated the timetable for when it arrived. Well, I think with that question, the easy thing to go right to is like, if you want peace of mind, just go start stepping in cold, icy water in the middle of some of your recovery runs and and then run it, at least get familiar with that feeling. And maybe your body will adapt, maybe it won't, but we won't know until you do that. So if you want peace of mind, like the question is irrelevant, let's try that first and see if your body responds. But I agree with you, Bracken, like you might be one of those predisposed people. There's, there's people out there like, for example... And by the way, kudos and shout out to Ian Kasky for his win. Ian Kasky, ladies and gentlemen. Dude, won uh, Chicago's toughest 12-hour this weekend. Um, and he's had some, I would say, some ultra fails in his career. So to see this come through has been really good. But uh, Ian Kasky's a historical cramper. He cramps a lot. And he, he's well-trained. He runs a lot of miles. He run, runs hard. He trains for race demands. And he simply still cramps, doesn't he? He's a yeah. cramper. And uh, I don't know if that'll ever change. Will it? I don't know. However, that could be your case as well, Carrie, is all I'm getting at. I know that I've had four or five races in my life where I've dealt with real cramping. And they were all races where I was going to cramp either way or I had started to have signs of it. And the water got to the point where the water made it happen. Even in Dubai. This is how I know it's not temperatures because in Dubai... I got to the point where I was trashed, and when I entered water, which was like bath water, warm warm water, I cramped immediately. As soon as my foot touched it, my hamstring cramped. So it's less of a temperature thing. But you know what? Also, though, with all the water in obstacle course races or even in a trail race, what happens? You jump in water, and then you got to crawl out a steep embankment out of it. And it's that yep. flexion on the calves that no matter what it is, it's the combination of the two. You never just go in water and it has a nice gradual like out exit. It's always that steep get on your hands and calf thing. So that's something to think about as well if you can like duplicate that in training, which you probably aren't currently. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. You ready for it? Yes, sir. All right. Ryan Moody says, uh, hey, guys, huge fan of the podcast. Question for the next Q&A. What are your thoughts on blood flow restriction training? Is there a place for it? In, is there a place for it? You like this one, huh? Is there a place for it in OCR slash endurance training? And if so, how would you employ it? Do you think it can be a useful tool for injury re- recovery, either to help with healing or to keep strength while unable to handle higher loads? Thanks. Look forward to hearing your take. This will be its own episode at some point. Not could we often we say, oh, this could be its own episode. This will have to be its own episode. And I'm just going to start out, Kirk, by saying this is one of those instances where I'm not going to be too proud. I don't have a handle on the research yet, and I don't know enough about it to make a statement one way or the other. Well, then we are giving two of the same answers here because I don't like to talk about anything I haven't experimented with myself. And I can read all the anecdotal evidence that I care to, but we preach firsthand knowledge and I don't have any. Yeah. Here's what I do know. I don't know if I want to say a lot. Many of the people who practice it aren't well versed in it enough to follow guaranteed protocol. Uh, I also know that because it is used in the medical realm, it has veracity. 
I mean, a lot of what we do stems from other people's science. Even something as small as compression boots. They've been using those for for post-op and for other medical issues for years. It was proven in that industry and we took it. So blood restriction training is definitely used in rehab from serious injuries. And so there is a component there that has veracity. There is something there. But I have yet to be persuaded or convinced of a tried and true protocol that I would be willing to give to others. So I don't want to conflate the two. I don't want to say it's because I won't use it, it's wrong. And I don't, don't want to say because I believe that it's it's beneficial that you must use it. I think it's pairing the two together, finding out that it is true, but also finding out a proper way of implementing it for your sport and without the guidance of a medical professional. Damn it, Ryan. I wish we could answer this better for you. Yeah. And it's a very, it's a great question. It really is. And there's probably some merit to it. I think we're like on the, we're on the, like we're scratching the surface as far as how this is truly physiologically impacting endurance athletics for sure, let alone just like pure raw power and strength. So that, I, w- I don't have anything. I wish I could add to it. I can't without babbling. Yeah. A lot of people claim that it's a game changer. It's a, the next frontier in performance training. Uh, and, and it strikes me a lot that it has a lot of similarities with hypoxic training, mm. um, both of which are purported to have really fantastic benefits when implemented correctly, but they're also generally implemented on such a small sample size, on such a very specific type of person that I don't yet buy into the protocol. I believe the benefits of both, but I don't buy the protocols yet. So I'm just I'm just still waiting. I'm still waiting and reading, and, and when I know more, then I can speak on it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I guess that was kind of a a letdown for a last question, but it's the truth. So <laughs> what do you we're do? At. No knowledge to be dropped quite there yet. Um, all right, it's my time. I got to go meet uh, Roy at the bank so I can buy myself a camper, Racken. Yeah, I think it's important that he watches you receive the cashier's check and watches you sign it over. But Kirk, he might just be some fancy window dressing on a scam. I, I'm a little worried you're going to walk out of that out of that bank and Roy's going to split. I think that you need to show him the signature and you pocket that and you bring Jess along as your muscle. And then once you have camper in hand, you make the transaction. I met Roy this weekend at his house and looked at the camper and he took an hour and a half to walk me through it. And I'd be like, what about where the water heater is in this camper and all this? And he goes, one thing at a time, Kirk, we'll get to that in a little bit. And he walked me through inch by inch this camper and explained how he stays in Walmart parking lots on his trip down south to Texas in the winter and how he never has pooped or peed in the toilet. So it's I can christen this thing. And he was very, very thorough. So me and Roy had spent some time together this weekend to the point where I wanted to just get out of there. So I'm afraid I'm going to go there to the bank and I won't be back till like 10 o'clock tonight because Roy's going to want to like have dinner afterwards. So I'm not worried about Roy stealing my money back. Yeah. He's going to want to come home and inspect your, your pad for where you're going to keep it and what what sort of sunlight it's going to get throughout the day and make sure that your ampere rating is all good on how, on the cord you're using. It's, it's going to be a process. Yeah. Roy's got uh, color coordinated uh, Tupperware bins in there. 
in the storage, which each color means it's for a certain purpose, electrical, plumbing, uh, outside, and it's all coming with it. So uh, me and Roy were organized. It's going to be all right, Brack. And I'm not going to get bent over here on the transaction. That is exactly the type of person you want to buy a used vehicle from. Dude, it's so pristine. This guy has basically spit-shined it every day of his life. So I think I'll be all right. All right. Well, Kirk, I'm excited for you. Thank you. And Roy, I know you don't listen to this podcast, but sorry I'll be late meeting you at the bank. Hey, Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. What can I say? I'll direct him to this episode so he buys my excuse. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Tuesday.